um, I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray, and then uh, spend time in God's word, uh, seeing what it is that the Lord would say to us from this scripture. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, this text begins... so sad and so small with these two friends, Mary and Mary, going to the place where they expected to find the body of Jesus and to mourn for him. But you had a plan to change their world. And as the story goes forward and these two women encounter you, Lord Jesus, risen from the dead, you then tell them of your plan to change their world. And the text ends with the disciples receiving your standing orders for the church, the Great Commission that the church would know what it is for, what it's supposed to be doing in the world, how it's to glorify you throughout eternity. Lord, as we come to this text, I pray that you would capture our joy once again in your word. We've uh, each had a week, six days outside of the church, we have been away from your word, and many things have happened. Uh, perhaps the, the flames have, have gone low in some of our hearts. Perhaps it's been a while since we've thought about what it is that you created the church for, what you've called us to. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would stir us up, fire us up, 
for action. That we would be confident and excited about the good news of what you've done in Jesus Christ on the cross. The amazing blessing of what you have given us in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And then the amazing plan that you have for the world that you call us to. May we be excited about that. And may we be devoted to take action and to follow through on your command. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I've been thinking quite a bit heading into this, uh, this series on, on biblical community about the power of the proverb. Uh, proverbs are, um, there. There's, there's, I'm sure, a good dictionary definition for this, but I, I think that they are a, a, a short, compact, memorable saying that sticks with you, right? That's, that's kind of the nature of the proverb is that it's got to be something that people say and then they almost immediately, they, they nail it, right? They're like, yeah, that total, I get what's being said there, but it's boiled down five words, ten words. It's memorable and, and, uh, and, and, and visual, they, they stick with you. My father told me a number of years ago to measure twice and cut once. And that is, that just makes sense, right? You know, double check. Because once you cut that board in half, you can't add any more on, right? I just gave an explanation of something that's immediately evident in, in the proverb. Um, a, a gentleman that I met in Belize when I was there in 2013, he said that they say, is the juice worth the squeeze? Right? You get that? Yeah. He who, uh, one of my students from Zambia said, he who knows that his throat is small does not swallow a cherry seed. They pass that around in, in, in Zambia. Do you, do you get that? Right, you know the the visual makes sense, and you might hear the the saying, and then you say like, where does that connect and plug in? And one day you'll be like, oh, I remember that saying. I like this: He who is afraid of the leaves does not go into the bush. Our own Heidi Gore posted on my Facebook wall this week: When a woman says what, it is not because she didn't hear you. I like that. I don't know that that's a proverb yet, but it, it, it should be. Um, another uh, Zambian proverb is this, teeth are bones. That doesn't immediately translate, but they understand within their culture that teeth, you see them when someone's smiling at you, right? Remember that, that teeth can bite is what this is saying. That, that just because someone is smiling at you doesn't mean that they like you, right? We all have that unfortunate moment where we need to teach our children that not everyone uh, who says that they are true is true to them and they need to be careful. Another uh, Zambian student said about Americans that we, that Americans have all the watches, but we have all the time. Uh, think about that, right? Um, and then my high school friend Karen Arshambo, uh, she said that her grandfather always used to say, be true to your teeth or they'll be false to you. I like that. Why are, why are proverbs important? Um, they're, they're important because they nail wisdom into these tiny memorable packages that, that, that leap up in our minds. And, and if we remember them, they help us keep on focus because who's got time for a massive dissertation? Right when uh, who's got time to uh, to to call up this long chain of reasoning when they need to make an instinctive decision? The proverbs are this collected wisdom that gives a group life. Right? Okay, we're doing an experiment here. Be ready. Right? If I say God is good, you say all the time. All the time. There you go. That's a proverb that the church packages and remembers and it becomes part of our life. They say in Africa that wisdom is not like money to be tied up and hidden. Wisdom is to be dispensed and used and shared. That's why proverbs exist. I ran across this proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. But if you want to go far, go 
together. If you want to go far, go together. As we uh, start working through this series of passages that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, I-, I believe that our church is at a threshold. Uh, we, have, we have bumped up against this place in the past, and then, and then our, our, we've, we've moved away from it. But I feel like we are at a place right now as a church where we are ready to lay hold of significant steps forward in ministry. Uh, we're in a good place financially as a church. And I think we're making strides towards identifying all kinds of of ministries that we can engage in to have long-term gospel impact in this community. But in order to do that, I believe that we need to embrace, in the deepest sense, the idea of community. That we embrace the call as a church to be together. Not just being kind to one another when we see each other on Sunday morning or while we're out in uh, the community shopping, but being part of one another's lives in such a way that we can live out the one another commands with each other. So here is my agenda this morning and over the next couple weeks. And I'm going to ask for some specific action later. But this is the idea. Jesus gave the church a specific mission that continues to this day. Make disciples. And that mission cannot be carried out alone. It must be pursued together. We have the farthest reaching goal in human history. God commanded his church to join with him in redeeming humanity, in calling the people of God to himself. And it's a mission that's carried out in the context of togetherness. No Christian can be a lone ranger. No one can complete the Great Commission on their own. We must pursue it as a group. And so this is the farthest reaching goal ever given, the biggest project ever undertaken, undertaken by God. If we want to go far, we'll go together. Let's consider whether or not this idea is true to the scriptures. We see that God is in the business of creating togetherness. In the church, in the life and ministry of Jesus, he is calling the different ethnic groups together. If you understand the the timeline of the scriptures, right? God creates the world and creates the first family together and in harmony. And then sin ruptures the, the harmony that the man and the woman had together. The earth becomes full of violence and wickedness by Genesis Six, and then God floods the world. When the world is filled again, God fractures the peoples into nations. He splits them, I believe, so as not to have to flood the world again. But we see after Jesus is resurrected that God is now calling the different peoples of the world back together. Ephesians 2 says that he's making them one new man. Look at what Matthew says records Jesus saying in Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, it's the the testimony of someone who has faith in him, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Israelites are an ethnic group, right? They believed that that they were the sole people of God and that, that, that to their to their, their shame, many of them sinfully believed that other ethnicities were less than. But Jesus says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. The point here is that God is drawing all kinds of people together in his family. Notice the image. He doesn't say um, God is creating a multi-ethnic church. No, Jesus says we're going to eat at a table. Isn't that amazing? 
with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the heroes of the faith, the image that's created of unity and reconciliation that the world is looking for is the image of eating together as a family. The goal of the good news about Jesus and the evidence of that good news is found in togetherness. Jesus says this himself. John 17, 18. He's praying. Jesus is praying. This is the, the last prayer that he will pray publicly that the disciples will overhear before he goes to the cross. He's praying to his father and he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, talking about his disciples. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for these who will believe in me through their word. That's you, by the way. He's praying for you prayed for the disciples, he prayed for those who they would believe, and so on and so on down to today. What is his prayer? That they may all be one, together. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Have you considered that perhaps what the world as it looks at the church and judges the church, what the world is looking for is not a superior sense of morality or an ethical code that impresses them, but that they would see among the people of God great love, great togetherness, great unity together. And that that would be what makes them say, what exactly are you all about? And then we say, this is how Jesus commands us to live. Not that we lower the ethical standards and say, all you need is love, but that love would be the goal and the context through which all of the commands of Jesus are lived out. Now, how does the early church live this out? How do they live out this togetherness? I believe that any group that gathers together that's any bigger than like eight people is gonna have subgroups within it, right? You know, in my house, I have routinely had to inform my children through the years, like there is a planning and authorizing and permission giving committee in this family and it consists of your mom and I and you are not part of it, right? You know, so there's a subgroup within the group. There's the leadership team, right? And I've, I've, I've jokingly told my children throughout the years that I am an absolute dictator. Um, anyway, I don't know why I said that. Um, <laughs> that's probably why I said it. Uh, any group that's larger than eight is going to have subgroups. It needs them because if everybody can't talk and everybody can't get connected and everybody can't feel like, like they have a connection with somebody, they begin to retreat. So you look at the early church, what they did was they assembled in a massive group in the temple. We see this in Acts chapter 2. And then they would gather in smaller groups in their houses. And when we look to Acts 20, uh, you can find this in Acts 20, 20, we see that this isn't just something that happened in Jerusalem and then was discarded that Paul said that he taught the church in public, in, in Ephesus he gathered in a, in a large enough place, it was called the School of Tyrannus, that's kind of a, a cool name for a school, right? You know, if you were like, where did you graduate from? I graduated from Union County College, right? Boring. I graduated from the School of Tyrannus. That's cool. Um, he taught them there, but he also taught them from house to house. They gathered in smaller communities. <clears throat> because that's the tendency of people to want to be known and connected. How does this connect to the Great Commission? Let's look at, um, at, at, at Matthew 28. We find in Matthew 28 that the good news of the gospel is received and believed together. 
after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. How'd you like to be known as the other Mary in Scripture forever, right? Maybe that doesn't, maybe that wouldn't really bother you. Um, I'd be like, I want to be, you know, the Mary, the named Mary. Anyway, um, Mary and Mary go to the tomb together. Two friends. Why do they set out together? They set out together probably because this is an emotionally difficult thing and they're there to support one another and to care for one another. And the task is going to be more than either one of them could accomplish by themselves, but they're going to go together because that's what people do. People need community. And so they go together. And instead of finding a sealed tomb and Roman guards and a body, they find an open an empty tomb, and the stone is rolled away, and there's an angel there, right? They are overwhelmed by his glory and sparkliness, right? They are terrified. That's what happens in the Bible when angels show up. They don't look like something that you can buy at, at Hobby Lobby and then hang on your wall. It's like they're, they're, they, they're horrifying, like in an awesome, beautiful kind of a way, like terrified, you know? Have you ever been scared by a large stuffed animal in your house? Right? You go in the closet and you're like, what is that thing? Hank has this dog that's like golden retriever sized. And every time I see it, I'm like, ha, ah, there's a dog in my house. And I have to convince myself, like, it's not real, it's stuffed. It all happens very quickly, but still. They are seeing this, they are seeing this glowing, beautiful, heavenly being. And he is talking to them and they are losing it. Right? And what is his message? Do not be afraid. I know why you're here. You're here to seek Jesus who is crucified. You're here to see the body of Jesus. But hey, guess what? He's not here. He's risen. Come see where he lay. He's no longer dead. The world that they had thought could have come into being, all that Jesus was saying about the kingdom and about the character of God and all these promises that he had made that seemed to end with the cross, that seemed that, that, they, that they were over and done. All these ideas come back to life in their mind with the idea that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Come see where he lay. He is not here. He has risen as he said. This is the good and glorious news of the gospel, right? That, that Jesus takes our sins upon himself when he goes to the cross, that the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and is satisfied, and that with his resurrection, we have a guarantee that, that the goodness applied to our credit, given to us, will never end because his life is eternal. That's how we get eternal life. Not because we're good, not because we earn it, but because God is gracious and loving and kind and says, here is a life that will never end. Receive it. That's the good news. He is risen as he said. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, there's a line when, when Mary Magdalene realizes that, 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 that Jesus is alive, and it says, could it be possible that every sad thing in the world was going to come untrue? I love that. They heard this news together. They're then sent on a mission together. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. You will be together with him. And that's the ultimate goal, isn't it? Isn't the ultimate goal being with the Lord? Isn't that our whole intent and focus in the scriptures is that one day we will be with God the Father and Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit without fear of failure and sin. 1 Thessalonians 4:17 says then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the reunion of the church. Those who've died in Christ and those who are alive in Christ at his coming, they'll be together again. And then it says, and so we will always 
be with the Lord. Encourage one another with these words. What is the encouragement that we're to offer one another in times of suffering and difficulty? That one day, Jesus will return. We'll make everything right. All those whom we have lost in Christ will be gathered together again and will be with him forever. The goal is together. So they're sent, they go, and then they meet him. They see Jesus. What is his word to them? Do not be afraid. No more fear. No fear of death. No fear of being abandoned. No fear that your sins will not be forgiven. You have no need to be afraid because God is for you. Imagine what it must have been like through the years for these two ladies to get together and spend time together. Do you think they told this story? Do you think in the church, like if they were hanging out, right, in the context of the larger church and, and, and somebody was preaching and they were like, he's alive, he came back from the dead and you've not seen that, that they look at one another and they're like, we saw him together, us. We saw him, we know. They were together. We crave together as human beings. It is natural. We are a social people, but we live in a moral culture. Ever since the fall of humanity, sin has been tilting the world against this idea of unity and togetherness. When you look at Romans chapter 1, we find a passage that, that speaks about how we are pulling against one another, how we're dividing from one another, retreating from community because of our sinfulness. The Bible says that, that we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, People are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the condition of humanity. That's not community, right? That's interpersonal, interrelationship war. As human beings, we are easily offended. We have high standards of the way we want to be treated. And yet, we don't want people to get upset with us when we break those standards. Have you ever cut someone off in traffic because it was justified? Right? Well, I just need to, I need to make a left turn here, and I need to be in the left lane. I know I'm crossing about, uh, three lanes here. Sorry, not sorry. i got to make a turn. And yet, when somebody else does that, we're like, that maniac. Where's a cop when you need them? Right? <laughs> He's the exact place he was when you did the exact same thing a week ago. Thank the Lord, right? We have these incredibly high standards. We're radically individualistic where we're focused on me and my tribe. We're distracted by the infinite possibilities and goods of life that draws away from what's best. And we're surrounded by people who are just like us. And then even when we want community and we put it aside because we say we put all of our objections and our difficulties aside, we fear rejection from others, whether from insecurity or past hurts. And so we wear unhelpful masks and many times don't ask for what we need. This, by the way, is the world culture that we have been building together, disconnected from God's purpose and his plan. So let me ask you this. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Right? Think about all that we have. Our houses, our cars, our phones, our internet presence, our, our, our bank accounts, all these things that we're racing for. Is it worth it when we consider the aloneness that so many of us feel on a regular basis? Is the juice worth the squeeze? The effect of our lonely, aloneness, I believe, is that we're bombarded with entertainment that leaves us 
feeling unfulfilled. Facebook informed me the other day that I achieved 60,000 likes. What is that? Not that I liked 60,000 things, but I've posted enough like internet, whatever, that, that people are like, you know, they like it. And then so that Facebook's like, hey, 60,000 likes. And I'm like, what do I have for all that? They didn't send me a gift card or anything. It's like, I, I'm doing that for free, you know? Like, what do I have because of all this time spent on social media? It's not fulfilling. Thanks for the notice, but, but there's nothing that comes with it. We're numbed by the volume of information that comes at us, and therefore it becomes difficult to move our heart. There's so much information flowing, but there's no time to apply all that we're hearing. When we think of the vast number of people in the world and how cold the world is, and we, we think everywhere we call, right? We're paying people on a monthly basis to provide us with services. And when we call and we say, hi, my name's Keith Meyer, they say, what's your account number, right? Just reducing me to a series of digits. We feel alone and unknown. And many of us feel like the world is changing and transforming, and we're surrounded by decision makers and high-powered people who don't really care about us. Our opinions, our gifts, our perspective, and we feel unneeded. Jesus came into the world to pay for sins and to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. He came into the world to bring forgiveness and righteousness to those who would believe in him. But he also came to bring community to people. He came to build a family that has a mission. He came to teach people that, that God has given us diverse gifts and perspectives. He has placed the Holy Spirit in each believer in the service of this great commission. And that means that every single Christian can be needed in the mission. They can be known by a community that cares for them. They can be driven by a sense of real purpose and they can be fulfilled by that mission. This happens in the context of togetherness. Let's look at a, another section of this scripture. The commission is received and believed together. First, we see the gospel. Then we see the mission. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 says this. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped. They enjoyed him. They, they were aware of what he had done for them. They were aware of the things he had taught them. They were aware of the promises that, that he had made and all the things that they had seen. And now they knew that it was all true. It was all real and that he was alive. Remember in the other Gospels, he demonstrates that he can pass through walls and eat food and and he can uh you know he he can do he is really and truly there and they were just overwhelmed with a sense of awe and enjoyment of him but look at what it also says some doubted i don't think i have ever heard a sermon on this ever i don't know i think like if i were there i wouldn't doubt or would i like what is really happening here What's going on? Is it, is it possible that the human condition is such that, that Jesus revealed this to them? He appeared to them in their, in, in their presence, gathering them together and knowing that, that this group of 12, that they would struggle at times, that they would be filled with doubts and with questions and that they would need each other to stay on the path and to stay true for the remainder of their lives that they needed to see this together so that they wouldn't say, did I really see that or am I like losing my mind? They experienced this together. 
One of the um, privileges of pastoring is that I get to be with people and to encourage them to grieve with them in the midst of their struggles and their pains and their doubts, the most difficult times of some people's lives. Uh, That's a privilege and one that I think anyone who's called to ministry needs to not see as a distraction or as a burden. If you're going to be a pastor or a, a leader in the church, you need to understand that that's the real work. It's not the preach. Preaching sermons is fun, right? It, preaching sermons is, is encouraging and convicting, and you learn things from it. But when it really comes down to it, people need love care and they want to be able to share and to be honest and open in the midst of those darkest, deepest moments. And to be able to encourage and help in those times is an incredible privilege that should not be given up. To help people in the middle of their pains and doubts. To encourage them to trust God through their fears and anxieties. The truth is, this is not a job that's relegated just to one person within the church, though. This is a command given to everyone in the church. The people of God are commanded in the book of 1 Thessalonians to encourage the faint-hearted, to, to, in other passages, to mourn with those who mourn and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we cannot do this until we are with one another. They worshiped together and some doubted. There was a mixed group there. They were believing, but they would struggle at times. I believe this is one of the reasons why this revelation comes to them when they are together. So that they would be able to stay on the path for the remainder of their lives. Let's look at the Great Commission, this section that comes next with with a fresh look, understanding that that, that, that they're there together. Not just that this is a command to an impersonal group of people, but that this is given to 12 men who are standing there. We see in verse 18, authority. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's going to come next is important. And it is spoken, these words are spoken by someone who has all the power in the entire universe. Authority, by the way, is is different from, from power. Power is the ability to accomplish work. Authority is the right to demand obedience, right? How does a 16-year-old, sorry, how does a 6-year-old stop a 15-year-old from doing something, right? 15-year-old, big, powerful, 6-year-old, small, right? Maybe with a loud voice. But you know what stops the 15-year-old in my house when the 6-year-old speaks up? The 6-year-old says, Mom said, right? That's not power. That's authority, right? Appealing to the authority of, of mom or of dad, right? This is, you, you look out on a football field and you've got these big guys, right, who could crush those shrimpy little guys in their ref suits, right? But the, but the refs are there with all of the authority of the NFL. And they're like, stop. Hey, all you guys, move back five yards. What? No, we're not going to. All right, you're out of the game. That's authority. Jesus is all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that every Christian, every human being, R.C. Sproul has said, every atom in the universe obeys the authority of the Lord Jesus. And so what does he do with this authority? He gives the church a mission. The mission is to go and to make disciples of all nations to leave the place where they are and to spread out and to teach others to follow Jesus from all different ethnic groups, to to spread and to share. 
to integrate them into the community of faith by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To say, you are a part of the people of God. You've been saved by the plan of the Father, by the death of the Son, and you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And then to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. The command to the church is to share the greatest news ever delivered and to see lives changed. They've been given a mission by the authority of Jesus, and then they are promised that they will not be alone as they seek to accomplish this work. Instead, they would have his presence with them. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm with you. We're together in this. I am not going to leave you. The presence of the Holy Spirit is there powering the the ministry, shaping the people, transforming them into the image of God, giving them the ability to resist sin and to to speak. And through their, their speaking of the words of God found in Scripture, lives and minds and hearts are transformed. The plan of God presides over all of this. This is God's plan, is to draw people to himself. And then the purity of the Lord Jesus, his righteousness, preserving his people. This is a huge mission. Huge. It started 2,000 years ago, and it is still going on. Listen, we may look at our culture and think that the mission of God is somehow failing. Now, let me say this. The situation of the church in the United States is bleak. Uh, Many churches are declining. But throughout the world, the church has an enormous foothold. There are more Christians now than have ever been in the history of the world. The gospel continues to advance, and that ought to be good news. But as the people of God become aware of what's going on in their culture and they look to the church and they look to God's word, they see that the mission is not to be satisfied with the status quo or to lament how the the culture has fallen, but instead to say, how can the church be the church? How can we get on the mission that God has given us together? This is our mission, to share the good news about Jesus so that everyone who needs to hear can hear and be saved and integrated into the community, into the church, and then engaged in that same purpose until the job is done and the Lord Jesus comes. That's our mission. Share the gospel, make disciples who will make disciples until the task is accomplished and then Jesus returns. And so here's my ask this morning. I want to encourage you to take a, a faith step. Throughout the history of the church, the church has met in buildings, yes. But it has also met in houses and in smaller groups. In the big group and in the small group. What happens in a group this large is that people say things like, I don't know that person. We come in week after week and we sit in our spot, right? Somebody who's new comes in and sits in our spot. And we're like, you don't belong in that spot. That's my spot. Because we don't know them. They're they're new, right? Church becomes this disembodied place that that we attend and we know some people. And and many times I'll say to somebody, hey, you know who else is excited about that? This person. Someone will say, I don't know them. The the mission is is given to a people who are together, who know each other, so that when we see the commands in Scripture to, to love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, prefer one another, honor one another, we're able to say, I know those people and I can accomplish that. And it doesn't happen unless we know each other. 
So here is the appeal, and this is what I'm going to be preaching on over the next couple weeks as we examine passages of Scripture to say, is this what the Bible teaches, and what does the Bible teach about it? We need people to step forward and to say, I'm willing to learn, I'm willing to take action, understanding the place of the smaller group in the life of the church. And we need people to be willing to be trained to serve as leaders of those groups. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do in your bulletin, right? There's a, a connect card and it says, let's see, you may have already turned it in. There are usually extra bulletins. You can, you can grab one, fill it out. Uh, there's a number of dates when we're going to be running small group training. Right? You, don't, you don't need to show up at this thing and think you're going to get assigned something, roped into something. You, know, you can just show up and learn. No obligation. But the hope is that you would come and, and you would learn what we're trying to accomplish in groups. You might say, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't be part of a small group. I can't lead a small group. I'm not a world-class Bible teacher. Here's the good news. You don't need to be a world-class Bible teacher to lead a small group. So I'm asking you to come out and to be part of an experience to get trained so we can be part of creating more together. Because I believe that we are not going to go farther in pursuit of the mission of God until we get together. We have to know one another and care for one another, and create capacity and ability to connect other people to our family as they come here. So as we close, this is what I'm asking for. Go ahead and you, you hand me that card on your way out. You send me an email, text me, whatever. Just say that you're ready. You're willing, okay? Let's just review as we close. Why together? Why? Because our objectives are clear, aren't they? The mission is given in the context of togetherness. It doesn't start with one individual. Jesus chose 12. The mission of the church ultimately is togetherness. Worship for all eternity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The first community. We're going to be engaged in honoring and lifting them up for what they have done for us and who they are to us throughout all eternity. But it's going to be done as a family, in, in fellowship together. The mission cannot be accomplished without togetherness. Why together? Because the mission is huge. All the Christians who have lived up to this point who've been working at it have not yet been able to accomplish it. Because the mission continues. It's beyond just your skills or my skills. It's beyond your lifespan or mine. we got to be in this and say the mission goes on even when we no longer go on in this world. Why? Together. Because our gifts and skills and experiences are diverse. God has given gifts to his body, and there is no one single person who possesses all the gifts. If you had them all, your name would be Jesus, right? He is the only one who has the gifts, and he's given them to the church. And I believe this, I believe it so strongly that we have everything we need to accomplish our mission in this church right now. We just need to say, how do we all begin to head in the same direction, to row in the same direction. Why together? Because successes are shared in the Bible. People told Paul, you're better than other people. Or they were saying, Peter's better than you, Paul, or Apollos is better for you. And what is Paul's response? He says, ain't nobody got time for that. Right? What does he say in 1 Corinthians 3, 6? I planted, Apollos waters, watered, but God gave the growth. God is the one who accomplished what was accomplished, and it happened because we worked for the same task, for the same purpose. As a church, I believe that God has brought us to the place where we now need to say, how do we truly, really get to know one another so that we trust one another.
so that we are able to look out at the work that God has given us and say, we are ready to accomplish it. We're, we're ready to continue to move forward. Why together? Because that's what eternity is going to be. Worshiping the Lord as a community. I want to encourage you again. Please, uh, I don't, I don't want to run trainings and just have like one or two people show up. I want to have a group so that, so that it feels like what we're trying to create. Right? What, what I'd like you to do is to, to fill out a connect card, turn that thing in. It's going to be here for a couple weeks. I'm going to continue to come after you on this. Um, but, uh, but, but, but put down when you're available, and then we'll let you know. We'll contact you and say, yeah, we're having a training at this time. Please come. And I tried to give you a bunch of times to be there. I'm going to pray. Worship team's going to come. We're going to close uh, singing a song together as a family. Father, thank you for the fact that in the scriptures, you answer our greatest and deepest needs. You created Adam in a world that was very good and you created him alone and you said it was not good for him to be alone. He needed someone. And so you created him a companion. The people have, of God have needed each other from minute one when you gave the Great Commission. And so, Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help our church. We have some good groups that meet. But when new people come or when folks who are experiencing transformation say, where can I get connected? We need a greater capacity to get the job done to create space for everyone. So I pray this morning that you would speak to hearts, that, that, that we would identify our need to be in community with one another, genuine, transparent community, and that you would call some, many, to step forward and to say, I want to be involved. I want to be, be part of the solution. I want to be part of creating family at this fellowship, this local church. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who has heard the word, who has heard the good news of forgiveness of sins because of the death of Jesus on the cross, and yet they have not put their faith and trust in you, if they, if they have no confidence that if they were to die, that they would stand in your presence and be accepted, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you now. Lord, we pray for salvation to come to someone today. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. I thank you uh, for this church and for the way that you have blessed it. And we pray that you would continue to increase the spiritual blessings that you have given to it as we walk in faith and dependence on you. Help us to hold true to your word and to exalt Jesus in all things. We thank you for your grace and kindness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Amen.